And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Business of Sport podcast on The Athletic. Each week, we'll take you behind the curtain into the world of football business and other sports across the globe. Alongside me today from The Athletic is football news reporter Matt Slater. And we're going to be joined by two of football's leading economic and legal minds, Daniel G and Stefan Szymanski, to help us ponder the question, should football scrap transfer fees? Right now, you can subscribe to The Athletic for just £3.99 a month. So you'll get all the great analysis, the in-depth features from the very best football writers around and ad-free versions of all our podcasts. Just head to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman to sign up. Well, let's start with the question of scrapping transfer fees, because this is the piece that you've written, Matt, on The Athletic this week. I just wonder why now... Have you written it and what made mm-hmm. you write it? Well, why now? Well, I wrote it because mainly because it's the January transfer window and we are doing a big series of features that are all transfer related. And I thought, well, that's fine. It's good to know every every element of, of that game, which is by far the most popular thing we do. Um, we have a whole podcast dedicated to transfers. I'm just going to sort of you know, be devil's advocate here, which is interesting because we're about to speak to an advocate, and say, well, why why does football have transfer fees? You know, rugby union doesn't. Rugby league sort of did, has sort of got out of the habit of having them now. Cycling was a sport I used to cover. Had a famous one that I was one of the first stories I worked on. But, you know, that didn't set a trend. It was very much the one-off. Of course, we know US sport doesn't. Good reasons for that, which we might get into, hopefully. Cricket doesn't. So there's something quite unusual about Football, that's the first thing. And then you start to sort of think about that and go, hold on a minute, would I accept a transfer type system in my career if someone comes calling and and wants to offer me a job? Would I say, hold on a minute, uh, you've got to pay my current lot quite a lot of money to release me from my contract. I I can't come. Oh, sorry, the job's not yours then. You know, if you can't come now, then we'll get someone else. I mean, that's... That's a bit odd. So, it, you know, it got me thinking along all these things. And, of course, I'm not the only one that's been thinking along these lines. Thief Pro, the World Players Union, have. They've, they've, had a, they've had a go at the transfer system. They backed down and sort of agreed to a kind of negotiated compromise that we are just sort of dealing with the consequences of now. And I, I imagine that's kind of a sort of a living document that could, that could change again. And then... You know, it was the 25th anniversary of Bosman, which we did on the pod about a month ago, which, of course, is one of the landmark sporting decisions that really was supposed to... Well, many people at the time thought it was the end of the transfer system. It wasn't, as everybody knows. Um, you know, why? So, so what, what happened? Did, how, did, how did Bosman not release players and give them sort of full control over their careers? So these are the sort of things that were swirling around my head. I stuck it all down. I ended up taking about a thousand words out because it was becoming a book. But um, in true athletic style, people that got to the end of it hopefully realised that it's complicated. 
And uh, you can pretty much make a good argument for fees or scrapping fees, which is why we've got two of the people I spoke to who had really compelling arguments, uh, one going slightly one way and one going emphatically the other way. And uh, without any further ado, let's get them on. Let, let's uh, let's get them on. We're going to start with Daniel G, leading British sports lawyer, author of Done Deal, the definitive guide to the transfer markets legal framework. Simple one to start with. Where do you stand on this question? Could football do without the transfer market? Nice easy one to start me off on, Mark. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I, I, I was having quite a lot of thoughts about this over, the, over a long period of time, but especially over the last few days, which concentrated my mind to a degree. And like anything, it's hard to see what I guess a lot of people um, in the industry would call the, the counterfactual, i.e. the situation where something else would occur, bearing in mind that is not the reality and that is not what is happening at the moment. And as, as Matt said, you know, after Bosman, I think people thought there were going to be quite a lot of fundamental shifts that then led to you know reform of the transfer system with all of the stakeholders back at the turn of the millennia as it was and and then there's been you know changes subsequently since but um in true lawyer fashion of not answering all politics um not <laughs> answering the question at all the 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 point that i thought about as well which is a more broader issue is yes the, the football's i think the football industry could survive without transfer fees but like what uh, Matt mentioned just before, and this idea, if you can say it right, the specificity of sports, which is not an easy uh, um, set of fr- a phrase in the first place, <laughs> is football and other sports. I know we talked about the fact that you know some other sports don't have transfer fees. It is special and is different. Um, you know, short fixed-term contracts, usually over a decade or less. Um, the vast majority of those players on shorter term contracts, not learn term contracts. The insecurity of those contracts being pretty prevalent in that one wrong turn, one bad season, and you know, their careers and their contracts and their careers could be over. So I, I sometimes think that when we talk about the fact that why can't Mbappe move on a free transfer, in a way, that's the headline grabbing differentiator, which is sometimes very different to the actual real market, which is the vast majority of football players globally don't transfer for transfer fees. And I know that where we're talking about the balancing act between um, contractual stability and free movement, for those elite players that are paid handsomely, I'm not saying they shouldn't be paid handsomely, that is a particular issue impacting a disproportionately small number of players. And I think that context sometimes needs to be seen because for the vast majority of players, that contractual stability, that requirement that clubs will pay them over a one, two, three year and or more contract becomes the very foundation of their careers in what sometimes can be pretty short careers at that. Does the transfer market protect the value of the minority or the security of the majority? Or a bit of both. You've definitely put it better than I just explained in the best part of about six minutes. <laughs> but, well, it's a great one because of the following. I think that if you if you take the extreme counterfactual, which is players are just like any other employee, 
and they may be on big money or not. They may have a very, very specific skill set, which is only valuable for a particular period of time. But that contractual stability also works in the extreme reverse position, which is, okay, let's put it out there that everybody, everyone is an employee and can leave on three months notice or whatever the notice period might be under national employment law. Then presumably clubs could necessarily do the same. And what I think then becomes a difficult tightrope, I know I don't really want to open Pandora's box for everything, but it's an interesting discussion to have, is not only then our thief pro, I think sometimes, as Matt mentioned, caught in between a rock and a hard place sometimes of wanting to represent all of their members, but also the vast majority of their members not being the elite superstars in that, that actually it could become an even more precarious profession in that shorter term contracts might be extremely lucrative for the very elite players. But for the vast majority of players, if you could simply give one month or three month notice um, on playing for a club and moving elsewhere, I, I think maybe I'm looking in too much of an extreme position. I think, you, you, you know, there's, there's potential questions to ask there on that side. What do you say to those who say, well, hold on a minute, it's, it's either illegal or it isn't, right? And certainly within the European Union, I know we're no longer in the European Union, but let's pretend that we still are. We've only just got out and football's only just dealing with the ramifications of us leaving. And most of the football industry is still in the European Union. Under EU rules, this is illegal, isn't it? So I mean, why I, are you allowed to be illegal? I, it's difficult to use those type of phrases because I haven't seen a court case that says this is illegal is the truth from a national court or from a European court. Now, the, the, the real answer to the question or the or the probably more nuanced question and i know it's really for to get the reaction which <laughs> which is the and is the point is why hasn't a court or european court or national court or european commission or a competition authority actually made a decision on the legality of the transfer system? I think that's the real question. And I think the answer to that, again, is quite nuanced because at different times, stakeholders back in your great piece back in 2001, and then more recently as well in 2015, I think, I believe, with FIFA Pro, discussing mm -hmm. with FIFA, in the end, the matter didn't go any further. And that is because ultimately, it might not be deemed formal stakeholder collaboration, but it is probably political persuasion and uh, manoeuvring, which gets everybody satisfied enough with the potential outcome and solution and a framework in place. So it would take, you know, we go back to Bosman and you spoke about it brilliantly on um, a documentary recently as well. We go back to Bosman. It took Bosman, the outlier, the one, the only one that would challenge to actually make that Bosman difference. Now, I'm not saying that there might be another person, Mbappe or otherwise, that would do that. But the issue is also those at the very top of football, the players are absolutely disincentivized from challenging the status quo because although they are potentially restricted from moving, at the same time, the potential issue of challenging the system, putting in place years of legal wrangling, whereas they still need to maximize cynically um, and practically their earnings, their career, putting that career off track, you can see exactly what it did to, to Bosman. And it might well be that there aren't enough people, you know, for right or wrong reasons or otherwise, that want to shake that tree the same way. Yeah, I know, because you tweeted in advance of coming on the podcast that you were doing some research by uh, reading a, a, a paper by Jeff Pearson 
in uh, the European Law Journal, uh, and there's a paragraph near near the start. Oh dear. Which I think, which I think is no, no. But I think it's really interesting to to read it out because it broadens it out from just a compensatory debate to actually some of the other things that the transfer market or how the transfer market is uh, run uh, throws a few questions in. So I'm just going to read this paragraph, then we can discuss it. So Jeff Pearson says, first, he or she will only be able to move clubs in less than four months of any given year. Secondly, he or she will only be able to move with the consent of the current employer, which is unlikely to be given without the desired new club paying a fee, which may amount uh, to tens of millions. Younger players will have significantly less freedom than older players and will be even subject to some restrictions following the conclusion of their employment contract. So in economic terms, it means that elite players will be restricted to moving to a small number of clubs in a handful of EU states, which may exclude their nation of origin. So when you actually broaden it out to it not being just about the the financial side of it and a club paying a lot of money to sign someone, there are other technicalities within the market that don't seem, well, particularly fair. Yes, and but I think it's also important to broaden that debate out if we're going to into some of the reasons, as, as Matt's written previously on the transfer window and the reasons for a transfer window, integrity of competition and... Um, ensuring um, stability of competition, making sure that big teams can't buy the players late on in the season, etc., to that advantage. So it should be seen in, in that slightly wider to context. But I, 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 I understand that point. The other bit that Matt mentions in the great, in the really good article, I think I've plugged it about seventeen times now. But <laughs> keep going. It, um, is talking about, and maybe Matt can talk about it as well, um, the compensation element for unilateral breach of contract. So if what I know it sounds quite technical, but what we're actually talking about here is contractual stability, i.e. the players can't move unless um, the club has effectively br- materially breached um, the contract and has a reason to, to terminate. Um, the issue that's then impacted then is that if there's arguments that says, well, you should be able to just leave, even if you, the club has paid a large transfer fee to you, there have been quite a lot of CAS and FIFA decisions which effectively have um, hamstrung players that have wanted to try and move by having to then pay back quite large transfer fees by way of compensation. And that, I think, is something that almost certainly needs to be remedied in terms of tighter FIFA um, legislation, because at the moment, as we've seen with players like Methuselah, De Sanctis, um, and others, they ended up having to pay back million, potentially millions of euros in compensation to their former club because of the breach of contract suffered. And that, I think, is a very bad a poor externality result of the, the 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 current structure of the transfer system. I'm glad I'm glad you brought up some of those cases. I, I think if we just maybe just sort of tell a little bit of a history here. Yeah. So I think everyone's got their head around Bosman, right? I think we kind of grasp Bosman. There's been enough Bosmans that we understand. If you sit out your contract, you are then a free agent and you can go free. And we know lots of people are taking advantage of this. Poor old Jean-Marc Bosman didn't really work out for him, but it certainly works out for many, many successes. And they tend to get a good wage because the club has saved on a fee. So for those who can wait, wait. 
And then, of course, what's the reverse of that? Clubs now are very, very nervous about anyone getting into the final 18 months of their contract. So then you get back into the whole contractual stability thing and making sure people don't wind their contracts down. We get that. We've been living with that for 25 years. So how do we get from there to here? Where, as you've explained, the pendulum does appear to have swung back towards the clubs, if you like, away from this idea of free agency that people did at the time, though they didn't push it, they didn't go for the, like the next mile, they did think the whole thing was going to unravel. Various people at the European Commission, important people who were looking at their rule book, the freedom of movement, one of the core principles of the European Union. You and I can go get a job somewhere in Spain. Well, we used to be able to, but that was the point. Now... They didn't, they didn't go that extra mile. So why didn't? Now, you've mentioned a couple of cases there, and I think, I think we could probably handle two. So let, should, we go with, should we go with Webster? Because yeah. I think Webster was interesting. I think Webster came next. Can you give us a minute on the Webster case? Well, ultimately, very, and very briefly, Webster invoked a, um, a pretty nuanced uh, provision in the FIFA regulations, which more or less said that if you provided notice um, by a certain date at the end of the season, you could effectively move with um, a set, uh, not set compensation, but a degree of small, everyone believed smaller compensation to be payable as a result. And in the end, whilst I believe, I'm trying to remember the club, was it Hearts, that I think he was it was Hearts, yeah. Steve Webster, yeah, defending. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That um, uh, so effectively, what happened in that first case was that um, clubs got extremely worried because they believed that actually, if the CAS decision was correct, and in the end, only a small amount of compensation was due for a player who was in contract effectively breaching his contract, although that's not the right way of saying, providing a notice to be able to um, leave and get moved somewhere else, that then the, the, the idea that transfer fees, large transfer fees would then be payable became more of an issue. And as a result mm. of that, then the Webster case became the first um, challenge post tr new transfer regs for clubs to be considering, well, hold on a second, we need to be very careful about this because the pendulum swung play aside for a time so, so that's so that's interesting so, that, so that's the point i wanted to get to so so webster takes it that way i'm going towards the players now and it appears that you could give notice and leave and the compensation would be basically sort of a a calculation based on the, you know, the, the rest of your contract basically based on your yeah. salary all right but there would be no kind of transfer element to it replacement player element to it so then we get to Methuselah and the pendulum goes the other way Explain the two of them. Well, very briefly, the, the circumstances were, were similar and it's all to do with this um, idea of uh, just cause really or moving without just cause and then unilateral termination as a result. And what the decision in Methuselah came and I think I think Methuselah ended up being on the hook for yeah. over 11 yeah 8 million quid 11 million euros yeah exactly and what the the cast took into account which they hadn't done in Webster were things like the non-amortized portion of the remaining transfer fee that would still have been more or less on the the club's books um, the fees paid to agents and to others the time left on his contract and also what's called the protected period which can be a uh, different obviously for players over the age of 28 or under the ages of 28 and and more or less the pendulum which was had gone towards the player swung very much back towards the club because this was a shot across the bowels to say if you're going to terminate 
And if it is done with or without just cause, you, the player, need to be very, very careful about that because you might be on the hook to it for a huge amount of money. Nothing to do with you, i.e. the, the fee that was paid um, to transfer you into the club, but you might be on the hook for it in case you do something that you shouldn't have done. Yeah. So, I mean, that, and that was, you know, the Brazilian playmaker, play for play for Shakhtar Donetsk, trying to go to Zaragoza, I think. And, and, and that's kind of where we've left it, isn't it, Dane, as far as I could see? I mean, yes, FIFA Pro a few years ago got very annoyed about the point you were making, kind of undue payables, this idea of lots of their members, not the stars, who were stuck in, in bad contracts, bad places, not playing, sent to go train with the kids or what have you, basically shamed you know, into, into sort of leaving, sometimes aren't just paid. What do you do about them? And then the idea is that FIFA are supposed to sort of be the police here and have this dispute resolution um, committee that's supposed to sort of solve these situations, but it's often just overrun, late, it, you know, clogged up, and and I think this is where FIFA basically lost lost patience with the system. But then again, back down, which brings us sort of to now, where you know I think we're just going to get the tweaks that you that you kind of alluded to. That we just we're probably going to stay with transfer fees because compensation is is something that we can understand. But we do need to protect these players who are being badly treated by bad employers. The question I think sometimes is, Matt, very briefly, is if the if the cash jurisprudence changes or the FIFA regulations change to an extent where everybody knows or understands that actually the compensation or whatever else it might be that is going to be payable by the player back to the club goes towards that Webster level, I just wonder whether then transfer fees... Um, actually then reduced accordingly because everyone then becomes aware of what players can do and may do because they're in a stronger position. Now, I just want to caveat one other thing very briefly. In a lot of the player contracts that I see and I negotiate, what clubs will still do is regardless of the FIFA regulations, they will put in a clause which says if player... Uh, unilaterally terminates without uh, just cause and the criteria that we're going to use are the FIFA criteria plus the market value of the player that we believe um, and will assess at that time as the basis for any compensation claim as a result. So what clubs are now doing is they're adding in extra contractual uh, provisions in order to effectively um, add in extra um, uh, factors that aren't necessarily Ex, um, expressly set out in the FIFA regulations too. But that club in that situation then sets its own market value for that player. Well, that, that can be an argument and negotiation point, which is, is it um, independent third party? Is it someone that you're using as a benchmarking calculation? Are, is How much discretion actually is there? And then a lot of the time it comes down to the nuanced position of when I'm sometimes advising players, it's like, how likely is this to happen? And the answer is not very likely because those uh, risks are so high is that sometimes then the player will go okay well I'm just not going to unilaterally terminate my contract under any circumstances so then I'm not going to have an issue with this if it ever comes up in the first place if football was to start again transfer wise market wise would they come up with the system that we have now me or me or Matt (laughs) oh Daniel that's got to be for you mate Um, you're the guest I think that if I if I was an administrator starting off and ultimately you, you you know you want to encourage well it's a slightly wider question because I think what you would then be thinking about is a European versus US model. Do you want a pyramid structure 
in sport and football more generally where teams can rise up the ranks or do you want some sort of closed collectively bargained hermetically sealed system and i know we're talking about a slightly wider point now but i think the european model for me works better in terms of my own philosophy after that then the question is if you're not going to have as much collectively bargained um, situations occurring and you're effectively allowing the free market to be able to play out for wages and potential transfer fees I, I agree it's not a straightforward one but i can see how we've got here um the alternative would be a bit of a tricky one to foresee isn't it isn't it weird matt how so many of our debates and discussions on this podcast over the last i don't know how long we've we been doing it two months three months, two months yeah, often yeah. often come back to a european yeah, yeah. u.s model and which works better for whatever subject we're yeah. talking about. It is, it is remarkable how many times we come back to that yep. battle. Those, those are the two distinct systems for organising professional sport, really. And they both um, do well in their own ways. Ju- just a final one, Daniel, just about to, partly going back to the rugby union point and setting the market value. From in, in your experience of working within this transfer market, what's more likely to set a transfer market value is it neymar going for 200 million pounds euros whatever to paris saint-germain or is it the players of a donny van der beek for example going for 34 million or 38 million or whatever it was what which one sets the market value more i actually think there are different markets in the transfer market, if that's the right way of saying it as well, obviously. Um, and at that elite level, I do believe that then those subsequent transfers, you look at Dembele, look at Coutinho, Van Dijk and Allison, sort of the resulting money flows because of that initial Neymar transfer, many would have considered maybe at a, um, an inflated level because of that initial inflated price. The point that you make that I, I find a fascinating one is sometimes when you're in negotiations or I'm trying to help in negotiations with agents and, and players, either on a renegotiation of a contract on its evaluation point as to wages or um, assisting clubs in trying to uh, d- discuss with third-party providers as to how much a player actually is worth in the particular market. There are so many nuanced ways that you can benchmark players these days. And it can be so detailed that you talk about the um, uh, the Van der Beek example. Who knows whether if he's playing very well for United at the moment, he's pretty good value for money is the truth. Or whether that's actually at an overvalue because they've got 15 number 10s playing in their squad right now. So um, what I mean there is, is that it depends on every scenario. Obviously, at the moment, the market is depressed. You can see that with the, the, the lack of January activity. The valuation then becomes, again, a self-fulfilling prophecy. And when that money isn't flowing, like it isn't at the moment, and when that money isn't flowing at that top level, like it was doing with Neymar and those other transfers, everything runs in you know relative parallels, is I think my, my short answer. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much for joining us. We will talk again soon, I have no doubt uh, about that. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks, Mark. Thank you very much, Daniel. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. Okay, so we've heard the case for upholding the status quo. We're going to hear now uh, from a man who in 2015 wrote a paper to support FIFPRO's argument against transfer fees, the economist and author of Soconomics, Stefan Szymanski. I know, Matt, you want to go first with Stefan. Well, Stefan, thanks very much for joining us. I have been dying to get you on a podcast for, for ages as, as you know, someone who kind of got into, or certainly got interested in, in the finance of sport and business of football and what have you by reading your books, quite frankly. I think a lot of people will be aware of Soconomics, but you've written a few. I'm reading one of your books right now about Detroit. But anyway, enough of the plugs. Um, keep going, no, keep going. No, 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 no. no. So we do the plugs. We do the plugs. Athletic, right? We, we, you know, we shoehorn that in now. <laughs> Stefan, we have just heard from Daniel G, who is, as you know, a, a prominent sports lawyer here in the UK. Has written uh, extensively about the transfer market, including a, a good book called The Done Deal. And he raised, just at the end, I know, I know you've got a lot you want to say, but I just want to sort of finish a point that he was making that I think you would have a very good insight on as a Brit who lives and works in the States. And he was making this distinction between the European model and the North American sports model and about how the transfer system kind of works. I know you might disagree, but kind of works in the European model but couldn't really work in the North American model. There are no transfer fees in US pro sport. Can you explain why there are no transfer fees in North American professional sport? Well, so firstly, he's not quite right. <laughs> there are fees that are uh, exchanged in, in or money changes hands for movement of players. Um, and that has a very long tradition in baseball, which goes back to the, the 19th century. So... I don't know where he gets the idea that there are there are no uh, exchanges of money. What did happen in baseball, and what has happened in in uh, and which is often the model for the U.S. or the other major leagues, is that the commissioner, a few decades ago, said that cash trades were banned, and so what that meant was that large exchanges of cash for the movement of players was were were not permitted. And that um, although again that since the commissioner works at the pleasure of the owners of the teams, it's not even clear if that rule is strictly enforceable. If the owners decided that they wanted to to, to make a cash transfer and the commissioner said no, then um, the owners would ultimately rule the day. So 
the fact is that they they have in in the American system there have been things like transfers for for since the beginning of baseball and it, they they definitely and it's not as extensive and it's not as significant as it is in 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 soccer but it's not there's no reason to say that it couldn't work and indeed my I've never been able to prove this but I firmly believe that the origin of the transfer system in in soccer actually in football, comes from uh, baseball, which in, instituted something called the Reserve Clause in 1879. And wow. the Reserve Clause, it looks, as it was originally formulated, looks very, very much like the transfer rules that were adopted in the 1890s in English football. So uh, not only do I think that they have a similar system in the United States, I think actually the origin of the football system is comes from North American sports. Okay, but all right, all right. But but by and large, I, I will take your technical point. But by and large, U.S. sports is a closed system. They share the revenues out. They have a different distribution method for talent. They have a draft system. The the, the deal with, between the players and the and the owners is pretty simple. It's a collective bargaining agreement. We're going to make money, all right? But don't worry, you're going to make some money as well. There'll be a there'll be a, a ceiling to how much we're going to pay you, a hard salary cap, but there's going to be flaws as well. So it is a it is a deal, and of course they get a great big opt out from U.S. competition law with these antitrust laws, and it's it's basically kind of people talk about it as sort of socialism for rich people. That that is the sort of shorthand. Whereas over here, it's a bit more of a kind of Away you go, laissez-faire capitalism. I mean, I know, I know you're going to disagree with bits of that, but that is how it is often explained. No, I've made that argument myself on many occasions. So if we're, if we're talking in very broad brush terms. There's this difference between the yeah. collectivism of the ownership in North American sports as opposed to the competition amongst teams in, in, in the football world, which I think is, which is one thing that makes the football world better. But I think, I think you, the other point you raised there, which is, which is really fundamental to understanding bit, uh, something like the transfer system, is that to the extent that there are transfers between teams in the North American system, and to the extent that cash changes hands, all of this must be agreed with the players through collective bargaining agreements. And indeed, but the, the reason why they are precisely allowed to get away with the kinds of restrictions they have in North America, like salary caps, like the draft rules, these are only permissible because they constitute part of a collective bargaining agreement. And under US law, anything that is agreed within a collective bargaining agreement is exempt from antitrust prosecution, from the competition law. And that's why when, you break, when the uh, negotiations break down between the unions and the, and the teams in the United States, what happens is, is the unions try to actually decertify themselves because it, that would instantly expose the team owners to antitrust law and the salary caps would be struck down immediately. So I think the one thing to learn from this, this story is that if, if, if football worked uh, more fairly, if there was a more balanced system, then what it would involve would be a negotiation between representatives of the players to agree a system. And the important point about the transfer system is the, the players' uh, representatives never agreed to this. This was a stitch-up between FIFA and the European Commission. And that is what is appalling about this. That would never be allowed in the United States. 
you clearly should have the representation of the players as part of an agreement. That's basic justice, isn't it? It's interesting, the role of the union then in, in America maybe compared to compared to in Europe. I mean, do, do, the, do the players European-wide need actually a more powerful union to represent them all in collective agreement? I, I, would, I would say so. I mean, I, part of the problem is that, of course, in the United States, it's one country. Um, okay, I suppose with mm. hockey, you could look at Canada and, and that, that's, a, that, that's also relevant. But, but essentially, the American system runs according to the labor law of the United States. The problem in football has always been you have so many countries involved with such different labor laws and such different political systems, this would be very hard to have a single union negotiation. And FIFPRO, as the, as the international body, has tried to act as a representative, but it's very difficult. And one thing to say is that the, the treatment of players by country varies quite, quite a lot. I mean, England always, ha- well, not always, but in, in the last half century, has had a relatively strong union in the form of the PFA, and I think if we're arguing about exploitation of players, then probably England is not your best example. Likewise, in Germany, they've had quite strong representation. So it's not there, it's not a problem. But as Fibros pointed out, in many countries where labor law protections are very weak, particularly in Eastern Europe, for example, there are substantial abuses of players. And people forget that there are well, we process, they have something like 60,000 members. We're not talking about the, the 100 or so players owning more than a million. We're talking about the, the thousands and thousands of players, many of whom are very young, very experienced, who are being significantly exploited in this system. And that's just you know, a fundamental injustice which, which goes on every day. Do you buy into any of the argument that the transfer system can protect players, which is what we've heard on this podcast already. So, I mean, uh, one thing is I, I, I want to be fairly fundamentalist about this. <laughs> and my assertion is that this is against the law. And no one has ever, no lawyer has ever presented me with an argument to say that, no, no, this is really legal. And every one of us knows that in our own lives, if we want to leave a job, we're absolutely free to do so. And None of our our current employers cannot demand transfer fees. They cannot punish us if we fail to uh, engage in a a transfer fee arrangement. I mean, it's sort of as plain as everybody knows that this is not the the law of the land. And we should obey the law of the land. And that that should be really the end of the argument, really. And and Now, you know, what, what it strikes me when in talking to when when I talk to a lot of people about this and there's an there's an immense amount of denial. And of course, in sports, you see denial about a lot of things. So take another topic like um, concussion, concussion. Everybody's in denial about concussion in football um, because it's inconvenient. It, it's inconvenient to face up to realities about what's going on. And um, it strikes me that one of the things that people say when they when they when they talk about the transfer system, they say, well, oh, forget about the law. Don't, don't worry about the law, but it's useful. It's a good idea. Well, that's completely wrong. You can't just say, no, it's not useful. It, it, it's, it's against the law, but it's useful, so we'll have it. That's, 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 that's ridiculous. Now, it is a valid question to ask if the transfer system were, were to come to an end because it is illegal, then what would happen next? And... My view of that is that they, 
footballers would be just like the rest of us, that we have many, we, many of us work in jobs where we have contracts with our employers and many of us enter into a long-term relationship with our employers. And we're not, we're not guaranteed by a transfer system. We don't guarantee by any, we don't rely on that. We rely on the fact that employers want to build a relationship with us. It's in both our interests. It's in my employer's interest that I'm happy and I work hard and, and productive for my employer. And it's in my interest that my employer is happy with me and that I'm doing that, uh, and that they see that I'm doing good work. And that's, the, and that's the norm. And that's really the protection that all of us have in our day-to-day jobs. And that's the protection that would be perfectly adequate for most players. Stefan, allow me to be ridiculous. I'm going to pose some of the defences of the transfer system to you. Right, OK, let's all be normal and let's let, I, I you know, Footballers can, can hand in their notice and go play for someone else, right? Well, what about all the clubs at the bottom of the pyramid that depend on transfer fees? Doesn't all that trickle down? Won't clubs go bust without transfer fees? That's a very popular argument. And I mean, that would be a good argument if the data supported it. But the problem with that argument is there's no real solid data to show um, that the transfer fees really um, benefit the the lesser clubs, and and I, you know, as 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 you kindly observed in the your uh, introduction, I've been writing about this many books, man, many many academic articles. I've spent a uh, you know half a lifetime looking at the financial statements of football clubs, uh, so I'm pretty confident that there is no real trickle down going on. And the the way to think about this is that. Um, the real the real payoff potential to developing talent and making money in the transfer in transfers is really like playing the lottery. Small teams draw on talent from their local area. That's basically all that they have available to them. And talent is you know fairly evenly spread across the planet, and there's a very small amount of really good football talent. So the chances of you in your little area coming up with such big uh, football talent is like winning the lottery. And winning the lottery and, and relying on a lottery to ensure financial stability is just absurd. You say, how am I going to ensure that my, my long-term financial stability? I know, I'll buy lottery tickets every week. <laughs> That's ridiculous. What you actually want is something more like an insurance system, which is what I've been proposing and suggesting uh, for for the last couple of years, actually, is that what football really needs is a system where every team plays in a small percentage of their revenues to uh, an insurance fund, and that when they fall into financial difficulties, they should be entitled under reasonable conditions in order to bail them out, just in the same way that if my house burns down, I can claim on my house insurance, or if my car is stolen, I can claim on my car insurance. Always assuming, of course, that I don't burn the house down myself, sure. or I don't arrange for my <laughs> friends to steal my car. All right. I think, Stefan, I think, you've, I think you've, you've shot down the trickle down, and you've also sort of managed to deal with another one that often comes up is... Well, what's the incentive then for developing talent? So you, I, think you've, I think you've dealt with those. Another one that, that is often risen as a, as a sort of, oh, no, 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 you can't, you can't, you can't smash the status quo, is, is this idea of sort of contractual stability and where that meets um, competitive integrity. So this idea that it would become a free-for-all. And if you just let people kind of leave mid-contract, the league would become a, a nonsense. What, what's, your, what's your response to that? So... I think 
I, that, I find that just an extraordinary puzzling suggestion. I mean, we, we see players moving all the time at, at very short notice. We see player loans moving between teams within a few months of each other. I mean, we used to have, and not, it's not that long ago, that we had transfers going on right up to the end of the season. And I mean, we had, and not, and, oh, that, that, was, that was changed in England when we moved to the transfer, when we adopted the transfer window system, which is, um, which is okay. But bear in mind, we had successful football in England for more than a century without that being a problem. So it, it just seems to me that, 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 that that's, a, that's a sort of, you know, it, it's a non-starter. We, we don't, we've, we've, done, we've had this rapid movement of players between teams for, for a very long time and it, and it hasn't been a problem. Where, where I think you could argue is that there, there might be something to say that uh, a player can't necessarily, if, if you want to move a few months before the end of the season, then you have to wait until the next season to play. But that's, that's, that's a minor and trivial restriction that you could, which you could apply. If you've dealt with the financial side of the transfer market and the trickle down, as Matt says, would you replace the current system with literally just coming to an end of a contract and moving on or breaking your contract halfway through is that what it then becomes well i don't know how what's your relationship with your employer mark i mean i you know i i i i, I failed to understand which one oh. I know, yeah. Yeah, well i can't say that. That, yeah. i don't want to get too personal on this yet so that that may be that may be different for you but most of most of us who've ever had a job know exactly how this works it's pretty simple right i mean it the the mystery. I mean, I, this is one of the strange things about the, the strange things about sport in general is that sport has a tendency to distort our perspective and to make us make things that are completely familiar seem strange. And the employment relationship is something that almost everybody knows and understands how it works. And what's the problem? You have an you have an employment contract. You work with somebody and. The key thing here is that, I mean, and this is something that people often complain about and fans often complain about, is that teams treat their players like horse meat, as if they were uh, cattle to be traded back and forth. And that, and that, there is something of truth in that, and that is a consequence of the transfer system. And what we, the rest of us expect in our employment relationship is our employer to have an interest in us personally and for there to be a relationship that develops where we give, we, there's give and take on both sides. And that's, that's what football clubs would have to do if you abolish the transfer system. They'd have to have, they'd have to act like reasonable employers as everybody, every other employer has to behave. It's not, it's not complicated. Um, for, for any of my employers who are listening to this, my relationship, my relationship with all of them is is absolutely fantastic at the moment. Um, uh, what what I'm also intrigued in, I mean, the I found the arguments from from both Daniel and yourself, pro and and against, fascinating. If you were to change it, get rid of it, where are the political battles? that need to be won who who need who would make the final decision on getting rid of a, a transfer market who needs to be persuaded well the ultimate decision maker it would probably be the european court of justice so we'd be looking at something like the bosman judgment which was a judgment of the european court of justice back in 1995 and this is, I mean, this is probably the major obstacle to 
Thief Pro and people like me who think it should be abolished, which is that you need to get a case taken by the European court to look at this, which for one thing, you need to have a player or group of players like Bosman to come step forward and argue the case and claim uh, that the system is at working against them and for the, the court to rule against them. Now, the problem is go is that players are very unlikely to do this. And if anybody, if any player has explained to them what happened to Jean-Marc Bosman as a consequence of pursuing the, uh, the, the, the case, um, they're, even, they're going to be even less likely. I mean, he was basically hounded out of football. And the players who benefited from him, I mean, several people tried to campaign to get um, some of the players, many of whom were enriched as a result of uh, the Bosman judgment, mm. to get them to give him some money. He ended up uh, penniless um, and with severe, with, with a number of uh, personal problems. And they got tried to get them to give him some money and nobody would give him any money, which was, which was actually shameful. I mean, it was, it was a disgrace. Um, so I think that's the problem is that getting, getting someone to, to, to step forward and, and bring a case in court is, gonna, is the real obstacle to, to getting rid of the system. Although that said, it might well be that as time goes by, I mean, I, I, the analogy here in the US seems to be with Colin Kaepernick and Colin Kaepernick, who stepped forward and, and, and was prepared to make a statement about um, racial injustice in the United States. And again, he's been hounded out of football. I mean, he's not been able to get a job in the NFL and the owners have, have squeezed him out. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, he made a stand and, and that has had an effect. And that could happen in, in, in football in, in Europe at some point, in which case uh, that, might, that might be a... It might even be that the, that the clubs might think that they want to avoid that outcome and might think that it might even be in their interest to get rid of this sort of, it is an anachronism. It's a, it's a very old thing that's, that's really passed its sell by date by quite a long time. Well, because you actually mentioned Colin Kaepernick, it, just, it, it gave me another thought as well, just going back to the freedom of movement thing, that even, even the American system doesn't guarantee freedom of movement, does it? You can say you might want out, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you will be allowed to leave just because it isn't a a compensatory system in basketball or or NFL means means clubs just go oh yeah you can go that's no problem I mean actually and the reason it came to mind was I was just thinking of a couple of cases in Houston one it one in basketball with James Harden who has gone to Brooklyn but I think I'll be dead by the time they next have a first round mm-hmm. pick, as far as I can understand from from that deal. And de- the rumours as well, uh, Deshaun Watson wants out of the Houston Texans, but that doesn't necessarily mean in the NFL that that he would just go. So you can be restricted within the within the American system right. too. Right. So it's it's not they don't have complete freedom of movement. And um, I mean, firstly, American labour law is somewhat different from European uh, and UK labour law. So that's one of the things to bear in mind is that. In fact, you know, the, so here's the thing. So, so I, I, this gets a little bit technical, but legally speaking, in, in Europe, if you leave a job, your employer could claim that they are harmed. So, for example, you know, if, if, if Matt were to say, I'm, I'm after this, I'm, I'm gone, I'm out of here, I got a better offer, then the athletic might say, well, hang on, you were in the middle of preparing something for us and now we can't do the, the podcast that we're doing and this is expensive and we're going to lose money on this. And so we're going to sue Matt now for damages because he left his job. 
at which point, actually, that they're going to get nowhere with that in Europe. That's not going to work because the 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 you're fine over there. <laughs> you yeah, there's no there's no the, the court will just dismiss that case and say no, you're free to move. And the United States, that wouldn't be that isn't necessarily the case. If you leave your job and there is some serious financial harm because of leaving in the middle of a job that was important and now it can't get done, there is some possibility of of, 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 clear, of suing for damages for that. Um, and so that an employer, so, so the, the position of, a, of, a, of an employee wanting to leave is, is not quite the same. That said, the bigger issue in the United States, I come back to that we discussed before, employment in the NFL and in the major leagues in the United States is subject to collective bargaining. So all of, if a player is restricted, they can complain about that, but then they are union members and that was a decision of their union which represented all of them. So they have a democratic voice within the union and say, well, when next time we uh, uh, negotiate CBA, we shouldn't do that. And if all the other players agree, they can agree to negotiate that out of the contract. But they have agreed to it in principle. So in that sense, it's fair. And what's the problem with the transfer system? It's just not fair to force people to obey rules which they never agreed to and which no one else is uh, forced to, 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 to abide by. Okay, Stefan, I'm going to be, just as a final thought, there, I'm going to be czar for the day. You, you've, you've won the argument. Um, the transfer fee system is going to be scrapped in European football. Um, but, but do we not need some sort of transition? I mean, transition phases are all the rage or have been all the rage here. Um, you've just basically wiped out a load of value off, um, off balance sheets of clubs. You've, you've just, you know, their intangible assets are not worth what they, what they were worth, you know, the last time they did their accounts. How are we going to do that? What, 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 how do we compensate those clubs for the loss of value? Oh, that that is a really great point, and uh, oh, sorry, have I, have I saved? Oh, I should have asked this one before. Is it too long? No, no. I mean, you've just, but you, you, the, you're going to have to turn off the microphone at some point because I'm going to go on and on about this oh. for a long time. There is a lot to say about this. So yes, it, you raise a really important point that the the players' contracts are treated as intangible fixed assets on the balance sheets of the teams. This is something that has developed over recent years. This wasn't always true. So up until the 1990s, players were not treated as intangible fixed assets. And if you think about this, the fact that, that the players can be treated as intangible fixed assets is really quite shocking. You are not, you, your employer cannot treat you as an intangible fixed asset. You mm. can treat your cattle as an intangible fixed <laughs> asset. You can, this, is, this is property ownership. And that, that should tell you that there's a problem with this. Now, the question is, though, what is the, what is the significance of these intangible fixed assets? Well, clearly, the, the idea behind the use, one of the ideas is to spread the cost of the player transfer fees over a number of years, which is actually makes, makes a good deal of sense in terms of how you represent the finances of the club. Um, so it's a kind of a smoothing thing. But then the other point about this is by, by representing these things as assets, you can go to a bank and say, will you lend me money, please? Because I've got assets here and you could lend me money against these assets. And in principle, you could think of this as being a mechanism for enabling the clubs to finance themselves. However, if you look at the balance sheets of the clubs, as I do, you will see that there is virtually no bank debt on the books of the clubs. There is virtually no uh, commercial debt 
on the on the on the balance sheets of these clubs because no bank or commercial lender in their right mind is going to lend to a football club because these are hopeless investments and always have been. So in that sense, if they were borrowing commercially from banks and you took away these intangible fixed assets, it would potentially be a problem. But since in almost all cases, the banks are not lending to these businesses, it really doesn't matter that much. Now, to sort of square the circle, the financing of clubs actually comes from the wealthy individuals who own them in most of the cases. These are, most clubs are underwritten by soft loans by people who own the, own the team. So in that sense, you know, these, are, these have become playthings of the rich. Um, and so taking away these intangible, the tra- I'm not against a transition period, fine, you know, as long as it's not too long, um, but actually it's not really a problem. Thank you very much for coming on. It's been uh, it's been absolutely fascinating, Stefan, and we appreciate you giving us your time. Thank you. Thank, you. Thank Stephen. you very much for having me. All the best. Thank you. Cheers. Uh, that's it. Thanks very much for listening. I'm back on Monday with David Ornstein. See you then. Bye. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.